At this point in the program, we'd like to go to uh, our pal in L.A., investigative journalist Lisa Pease. Welcome back to the program, Lisa. Hey, Doug. How are you? I, I'm well. We want to talk about Deborah Bowen. Uh, she's apparently involved in some lawsuit, and I know you know a little bit about that because it's still all breaking news. But, uh, you know, we were big fans of Secretary of State Bowen here. We want to give her an attaboy. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we worked hard to get her elected because we really want her vote protected, and she's really been coming through for us. She just sued ES&S, one of the major, really one of the two major vendors in the entire country. She's suing them for $15 million for repeatedly violating state law. They sold machines here in California, voting machines, to various counties that had not actually been approved by the Secretary of State's office, as they are supposed to be by law. What had happened is they had cut deals with a machine that had been approved, and then they swapped it out for a machine that wasn't approved. And change software without it being reviewed and just basically, you know, did what they wanted. Bait, bait and, and switch. Yeah, exactly. And so Bowen had had a four-month investigation going, you know, with some people on her staff, and they realized that this company, you know, it wasn't like a one-time thing. They repeatedly violated state law. So um, she's suing them, you know, $9.72 million for selling 972 machines and another $5 million to reimburse the five counties, you know, that bought the machines thinking they were getting certified voting equipment. And, of course, you know, it's a shame she can't sue on behalf of every citizen of the state who thought our votes were being counted on right. machines that had been certified. Right. But, you know, I'll, I'll settle. I mean, I'd be happy to give up my money if it means our vote might actually be counted, you know, accurately in the future. It's not that it wasn't counted accurately in the future. It's that we can't know that it was counted you know, accurately in the past. Right, right. And without certifying the systems, what are we going to do? So anyway, it's just, it's really fantastic. Recently, you know, a few months back, she had decertified almost all the major electronic voting vendors in the state and has forced them to jump through some legal hoops to get recertified to even do business with our vote in the state. And, you know, again, you know, big props for her for that. Uh, this is now taking it to the next level and really kind of holding them criminally accountable. I think that's that's what we expect our elected officials to do. We expect them to be advocates on our behalf, and we expect them to not only pass the laws but uphold the laws. And so I'm just I'm so happy that you know we're one of the few states in the nation that actually has a secretary of state that is trying to protect our vote in this way. Well, I'm confident, or at least reasonably confident, we will get the Secretary of State to speak to us on this program, but, uh, but you know, I, I know you'll be following this with us. Oh, absolutely. And as long as I've got you here, did you see this breaking news here that Scott McClellan in April in his memoir is going to implicate, uh, uh, well, let me see the quote here. I had unknowingly passed along false information, McClellan's going to tell us, and five of the highest-ranking officials of the administration were involved in my doing so. Rove, Libby, the vice president, the president's chief of staff, and the president himself. That's pretty clear. That is really, really interesting. Yeah, I had just gotten a little news flash about that about an hour ago and haven't had time to follow up. But, uh, you know, I mean, do we have any doubts? Did we well, have any doubts? Uh, you and I don't, but a lot of people out there do, so. <laughs> right, right. And again, you know, here's a case of a law was broken. So what do we do? Because it's the president, we pretend it doesn't count? You know, I mean... When the president breaks the law, you have to impeach the president. That's what the law calls for. And, you know, he's, he's repeatedly broken the law. I, I was there when John Dean uh, was talking to Barbara Boxer here in town a couple of years ago. Oh, it's on my birthday. That's why I remember it. <laughs> 
And uh, John Dean said this is the first president to admit to an impeachable offense, and he was referring to the president's ordering the NSA you know, to do these wiretaps without going through the FISA courts, without going through the, you know, the legislated approval process, which is a quick process. It's very much a, a cursory thing. I mean, right. pretty much they say, we want to tap these hundred people. A judge says, you know, any objections? You know, okay, done. You know, I mean, they're in and they're out. <laughs> it's not, it wouldn't have been hard to get approval. So that begs the question of what were they trying to do that was so outrageous that even one of those lenient judges <laughs> would have maybe balked at it. You know, maybe they were, you know, doing something really heinous. And, again, shouldn't we investigate that? Shouldn't we find out? But everybody's so focused on Iraq, as, as well we should be. Many thousands of people are dying over there. Yeah, we're going to have to talk uh, talk about the, the, this election as it unfolds, or this election campaign, uh, which I definitely don't want to do today on a holiday. <laughs> no, <laughs> talk about something positive. <laughs> well, I guess final item... Uh, just for your comment, I, this one sort of surprised me. It was buried in the back pages of the papers. Uh, they let out Arthur Bremer last week. Oh, the man, yeah. The man who almost changed the course of the 72 election by, by shooting down George Wallace, who was then the front runner. That's right. That's right. I actually did two other radio shows on this topic earlier this week. Um, Bremer, I had written a long article about this because I was fascinated by the case because yet again they're like, 12 wounds, but only five bullets, <laughs> you know, four people injured, you know, none of them killed, but, you know, two of them had bullets lodged in them, one of them being Governor George Wallace that paralyzed him. Yeah. Um, Bremer, again, one of these strange loners who, you know, seemed to always have money and could travel anywhere and stayed at the Waldorf Astoria, one of the most expensive hotels in New York City, and took a helicopter ride, which is, again, phenomenally expensive, all having worked as a busboy and a janitor and then not working for a year. Now, how does that happen? You know? <laughs> There's just uh, just you know, an, another in a long series of lone nuts that exactly. seem to be well, well, that seem to have a lot of money. I'm beginning to think the only lone nuts in this company are those who think there are lone nuts. <laughs> you know? It's just You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't realize you had expertise in the Bremer case, Lisa. Yeah, I actually you'll... wrote a big research article on that. Hey, well, yeah, you know, like... come back next month and, okay. and, and, and we'll do a little talk about that because Bremer did change the course of American political history. He doesn't get much uh, attention because George Wallace was not as well loved as many of our other politicians. Right. But he right. certainly he certainly had an impact on on the course of political events. Oh, absolutely. And and he had run as an independent the previous round in 1968, and he very nearly cost Nixon the election because he was splitting. He's basically a right winger running as a Democrat, you know. Yes. And, and when he was running as an independent, he was splitting the right-wing vote, not the left-wing vote. So Nixon had begged and pleaded and talked him into running as a Democrat in 72. And even then he was becoming a threat because the Democrats hated Nixon. You know, they weren't too thrilled with McGovern at the time, and Muskie had just quit, uh, thanks to some uh, shenanigans by the White House plumbers, you know, as directed by Nixon. Um, so uh, there's so much to go into there. That year, 1972, I think I can say with... With full factual authority, the CIA ran our elections that year, and I will talk about that with you another time. <laughs> All right. Well, well, I, I, I'm and I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So, Lisa, thanks for giving us uh, giving us a, a wide range of opinion on a wide range of issues here, and and come back again soon. All righty. Take care. That was investigative journalist Lisa Pease, who speaks to us from time to time from her uh, home in Los Angeles. All right, let's let's do a little bit of politics in today's program. Uh, I like this item from Salon.com, noting a recent Republican debate uh, that was held, and wherein the five leading presidential candidates mentioned Hillary Clinton and her husband Bill 
16 times and never once used the name of the sitting Republican president, George W. Bush. But then why would they? Given that 72% of the nation, according to recent polls, believes we're on the wrong track, none of the GOP candidates are going to be running on the Bush legacy. But there is much talk about Bush, Clinton, Bush, Clinton, raising the theoretical possibility that someone with one of those two names could lead the nation from between 1989 and 2017. That is a scary idea. But to talk about Hillary Clinton and her softball questions, uh, the Clintons do appear to actually play hardball uh, like the op- opposition. It was noted in Newsweek earlier this month that three years after the opening of the Clinton Presidential Library in Little Rock, only 0.5% of the 78 million pages of documents and 20 million email messages are available to the public. Bill Clinton has quietly asked the library, funded partly by taxpayers, not to make available, quote, sensitive policy, personal, or political information, including all communications directly between the president and first lady. We did want to return at some point to the smart-ass radar magazine Meet the Candidates Voting Guide 2008. I think we talked about John McCain from that uh, voter guide. I think let's take up John Edwards briefly today, who is possibly my least favorite uh, Democrat running. Noted to Radar Magazine, when it comes to religion, (laughs) we have the following quote from John Edwards. Jesus would be disappointed in our ignoring those around us who are suffering as we focus on our own selfish short-term needs. This is said by the man who charged a public university $55,000 last year to give a speech entitled, Poverty, the Great Moral Issue Facing America. Under the Service to Country section, it was noted that Edwards neglected to read Iraq Intelligence Estimate before voting to authorize war. He also used a tax shelter to avoid paying nearly $600,000 in Medicare taxes. Under relevant experience, it's noted that he sold his $3.5 million house to a lobbyist for Saudi Arabia while investigating that country's role in 9-11 while he was on the Senate Intelligence Committee. When it comes to family values, when asked about his position on gay rights, he reportedly replied, I'm not comfortable around those people. Anyway, next week, Fred Thompson. Stay tuned. But you know, if you think we misrepresent things in this country, and we certainly do, I'd like to refer you to NewScientist.com, our favorite science magazine, which uh, surprised me by having a special section inserted from China. Its purpose was to show what wonderful scientific achievements were about to come out of China and had a a fold-out map in the inside of the People's Republic. I note at the bottom it said, Research by Lucy Middleton. And it had little bubbles with things like, Fraud busters, scientific cheats, and charlatans are being outed on a grassroots website. On this uh, same map two inches away to the south, (laughs) there's a a little uh, marker that indicates... The location of Poyang Lake, which is described presumably with a straight face as the world's largest freshwater lake, which, which I found odd because my understanding was that Lake Superior was the world's largest freshwater lake in area and Lake Baikal was the world's largest lake in terms of volume. And since maps of China don't appear to show a rather substantial body of water in that location, I remain skeptical. Another stat that caught my eye, it shows the Himalaya Mountains, which are described as averaging an elevation of 8,000 meters. 
Now, it's true that the Himalayas, uh, the greater Himalaya mountain range, contains the world's only 8,000-meter peaks, which I believe there are something like 16 of. I am pretty sure that's not going to average out to the entire mountain range being 8,000 meters high. And in a final bit of uh, dubious geography, in the center of the country, it mentions Quingha Lake, which is described as the world's largest saltwater lake. Now, I'm pretty much willing to bet anybody 10 bucks that the world's largest saltwater lake is the Caspian Sea. Being a substantial body of water, in fact, the world's largest saltwater lake, it's quite evident on any map of Asia. Whereas, again, maps of central China don't generally appear to show a large body of water, salt or otherwise. Now, we hate to point a finger, but if you're interested in some scientific research, particularly in geography, we would suggest you give Lucy Middleton a pass. Here's an odd story for chocoholics. There are, of course, many people among us who really crave chocolate, and I, I, I may be one of them. But uh, recent research suggests that we might be responding to a demand from billions of chocoholic gut bacteria, this is according to the Associated Press, that notes that researchers examined 11 men who craved chocolate daily and 11 men who rarely ate it. They found major differences in what kinds of bacteria lived in their guts. Bacteria that thrive on chocolate can be found in great abundance in chocoholics, but aren't very common in people who are indifferent to chocolate. The researchers aren't sure at this point whether these bacteria are inducing the chocolate cravings or whether they simply flourish in a high chocolate diet. Research continues. Here's an item we can't resist. British researchers have demonstrated that couples who are trying to get pregnant should have as much sex as possible, which seems like that one ought to come from the duh file. But the fact is many couples actually abstain from sex on the belief that it will enable the man to build up a surplus of sperm for the time when the woman is most fertile. Dr. Alan Pacey told the BBC News that, uh, I remember one couple in which the woman would only let the man ejaculate when she was in her fertile period. So the poor chap was going for about almost a month at a time. Said Dr. Pacey, such strategies are counterproductive and can actually harm the quality of sperm. Evidently, having sex every day can increase the man's sperm production by 20 to 30% and will also clear out old, damaged sperm to make way for the fresh swimmers right off the assembly line. So if you've learned nothing else from today's program, <laughs> that, it, that is your take-home lesson. We mentioned this study in passing before. We want to mention it just in passing again. They're making a big deal out about this study for the uh, American Society of Microbiology who spied on 6,000 people in public bathrooms and found that nearly a third of men walked right past the sink on their way to the exit. In the past, these studies have been done and with similar results, and these have got health authorities to uh, conduct a number of campaigns hoping to urge people to wash their hands more often, especially after using the restroom. I would like to hearken back at this juncture the time when I was a student at this, uh, at this great university, and I took the legendary uh, human sexuality course offered by Dr. Milton Hildebrand. Dr. Hildebrand pointed out that there is a certain ritual that uh, men do when they go in and say, use the urinal, after which is to go over to the sink and turn the water on and sort of 
perform this uh, perfunctory uh, uh, effort at uh, cleanup where you sort of put your fingers through the stream and uh, put a little soap on, wash your hands off. He pointed out accurately that uh, the human penis uh, has no sweat glands. It's in a protected area where it's not going to be soiled by the environment. Whereas the human hand, in contrast, is touching every filthy thing in the environment. He therefore suggested quite sensibly that the proper ritual should be to go into the restroom and wash your hands before you proceed to the urinal. I think the good doctor was right. And uh, so, you know, I think they need a little more data. What was the person doing in the bathroom before they headed right out the door? And come to think of it, that might be another question to ask Senator Larry Craig. And I can't resist uh, interjecting at this juncture a story about when I went off to medical school and uh, was about to walk out of the bathroom in the spirit of Milton Hildebrand. And uh, one of my new colleagues uh, said, where'd you do your undergrad? And I said, uh, UC Davis. To which he replied, oh yeah? Well, I went to Harvard. And you know, at Harvard, they teach us to wash our hands after we use the restroom. To which I replied, you don't say. You know, at UCD, they taught us not to urinate on our hands. It's not true. It's an old joke. It's just a joke. But anyway, let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we're going to conclude today's program with one of our favorite moments from Ira Glass's This American Life. This American Life. 